verses 5 through 9. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Ephesians 6 and to these last verses of this opening section. This is the last section on submission, the last examination we'll, we'll make of the call to submit. And here it is in this one last call and instruction. Young Christians, young theologians, we're, we're not just going to be in these few verses this morning. We're going to jump to another part of the New Testament, and we're going to hear from a parable. So, see if you can hear what parable we're going to talk about, and where is it found in your Bible? Can you find it in your Bible? And later this afternoon, see if you can tell the parable in your own words. Can you remember the parable and give it back to your family? This is the word of Jesus, the living Christ, and this is his good news to us, though at first it may not seem like good news at all. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, open these verses and open our hearts and give grace that we may believe and be made new again. And show us the things that we have blinded our eyes and darkened our hearts to. And open us in our wills once more to the loving kindness and the faithfulness of Jesus the Savior. Show us what you are holding out to us and what we are refusing. And change all of this in us. And we may grow and bear fruit and be satisfied in you and in you alone. We ask all this. In the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Look, I don't, I don't know how to translate this passage to our world. I don't know how to jump culturally from slaves and masters to our situation in the world that we live in. Lots of commentators... Lots of theologians say that this passage applies now to employers and their workers. I don't see it. I don't follow that, really. And the reason I don't follow it is the cultural connection seems to break down for me. Because we say things in our lives like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You get to choose. Or sometimes, if we're fortunate, we get to say things like, I love my job. Uh, For us, in in our work, in our careers, in our callings, there is meaning and purpose and significance. And if you have a job, you get paid, but slaves got nothing but allowed to live for one more day. And if you have a job, and it, it feels like you're a slave, it feels like you're under the thumb of an employer, regardless of how bad your job is, you can leave it. You, you can get another job. It may not be the easiest thing to do in a down economy, but you're not stuck. Or you can move up. 
There is promotion. You can go, though not in one move, from a cubicle to the corner office. Or you can quit working for the man. Everybody's dream. You can launch out on your own, and you can set up shop. In which case, you become both your own slave and your own master. Look, I I think that this passage comes at the end of this string of passages about relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, now, now these verses. Because all of these relationships are relationships you can't just walk away from. Which is harrowing in one respect, and it's beautiful in another, because if there's any hope for these relationships, it will have to be found in grace. Lots of pastor types draw from these verses a theology of work. I'm not going to do that. I can't, I can't see it. It seems too shallow, too hollow. But in the time of the writing of this passage, when Paul wrote these words, Rome was full of slaves. Historians estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Not the city of Rome, but the empire. More slaves than citizens almost. And the reason was, if you were a Roman, work was beneath your dignity. You didn't have to do anything. Even the professional jobs would be performed by slaves in the empire at the time of this writing. It's not the same, but there is a slavery that we live under that is every bit as rampant as that. We're enslaved in our hearts. And Jesus told a parable about our slavery in Matthew 18. And he told the parable because Peter asked for guidelines on forgiveness. Actually, Peter was trying to figure out how to get out of having to forgive. He was looking for the limits of forgiveness. Trying to determine where he could bail out on it. He he liked it in concept and in notion. But just how far did he have to go with forgiveness? And so Jesus, the word of forgiveness in flesh... Jesus, the one who would suffer immeasurably to forgive. Jesus, the one who wouldn't let forgiveness be buried. And so he radiated forgiveness as he pushed his way out of the tomb. Jesus blows all Peter's categories out of the water with his parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So this king calls in his loan sharks. It was collection day, and they rounded up all the servants who owed money. They they called in those who owned the most first. And as they opened the ledgers, one name continued to appear more than any other name. So they called this servant in. This particular servant happened to borrow 10,000 talents, Jesus describes it in the parable. A talent was roughly 20 years' wages for a laborer. So if you do the math on it, it would take this particular servant 200,000 years to work off the debt. 
for the purpose of the parable, Jesus is saying it's a sum he can't pay back. And when you take out a loan like this, if you default on it, you don't have your McMansion foreclosed on. You don't have your Maserati repossessed. You forfeit your life. You don't live past this one. And that's the way the parable is told. The servant's brought before the king. He can't make good on his debts. And so the king declares that the man and his wife and their children, the entire family, is to be sold off into slavery. That's death. It's a death of judgment. And then the servant falls on his knees. And the text says, imploring the king, have patience with me. I'll pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Have you ever been let out of something? Have you ever been bought out of some cost? A mortgage or a loan paid off or tuition covered or student loans, medical bills wiped out. Or maybe it's not money. Maybe it's something you've done, something you've been, something you couldn't undo. And if it's ever been done for you, if you've ever been let out of something like that, it feels like being unburied, like being dug out of a grave. It's a resurrection. If it's ever been done for you, if you've ever been exhumed and given back your breath, what you do following that is you go and you live. You don't act like you're still buried trying to claw your way out on your own. And this servant should have lived But he acted like he was still dead. This this servant should have bought his kids new bikes. Maybe put in that pool in the backyard. Bought the inventory out of the ice cream truck. Parked at the end of the block. He should have bought his wife that new dress. And made a reservation at that new restaurant in town. The one everybody's trying to get into. The one that will cost you an arm and a leg. For a dinner for two, which doesn't seem like sound financial advice or practice, especially for one who just came out of debt. But this parable isn't about accounting, and it's not about money, it's about forgiveness. And it's usually something very dramatic and out of place that shows you believe in forgiveness. Business as usual is not the aftershock of forgiveness. But that's what this servant gives himself to. As soon as this one and his wife and his children are released, they receive mercy, they're not sold off into slavery, the servant gives his wife a peck on the cheek, tells her he won't be home for supper, pats his children on the head, and tells them he'll see them tomorrow, and he sets out to settle up his own accounts. This unburied man is putting himself back in the mausoleum. And it's down at the convenience store that he finds the one he's looking for. It's a co-worker of his. Another one who works in the king's house. Another servant. This second servant has borrowed money 
from the newly forgiven servant. And the second servant is found sitting on the curb, scratching the silver off a couple of lottery tickets with his thumbnail, always hoping to turn his last few dollars into millions. And he comes up empty. The tickets don't pay out, and he's about to come up emptier. A shadow falls over him as the first servant stands above him, and the greeting is awkward. The second servant knows what this is about. The first servant demands the hundred dollars that he's owed. And the second servant starts to make his excuses. He explains he doesn't have it. And times are hard. Money's tight. One of the kids needs braces. And he's doing his best to make ends meet. If only he could have just a little more time. A month maybe. Two months at the most. But the first servant grabs the second by the throat and starts to choke him. And when the shakedown doesn't produce the desired $100 note, he goes to small claims court. He appeals to the justice system. And the sheriff is dispatched to arrest the second servant and lock him up in the county jail until some family member or friend can scrape up enough money to pay off the creditor and buy him out. It's later at the staff meeting down in the kitchens of the king's house where all the servants gather together for daily instructions, duty assignments, and there are whispers and rumors in the kitchen. One of their colleagues, another servant, is missing. And when the one who has had him arrested walks into the kitchens, there's this obvious hush that falls over the room. And the head butler stands up and clears his throat and reads out the duty roster. And some of the servants are assigned to work the king's courtroom on this day. They're sent to the first floor to work in the king's presence. And they decide to do something very unprofessional. And they decide that they're going to appeal to the king. The text in Matthew 18 says, Now the servants were greatly distressed... It never tells us why. But you should know why. They're distressed not because there's just been a display of unforgiveness and that's bothered them. They're distressed because they're next. The unmerciful servant will come calling on them. He'll want to collect what they owe and he has no mercy. So while they're working the courtroom, they appeal to the king. They bow low and say, it's not our place to ask anything of you, master. But it is your place to hear us and do with us what you will. And we know your heart is generous. So will you consider this? Have mercy on us. Because our fellow servant, this other man we're indebted to, will have no mercy or kindness toward us. And the king hears their plea, and the king says, and why does this servant need to make good on your debts to him? He doesn't need any money. I canceled 
a sum on his behalf larger than the national debt. The insult of the king, the offense that's been paid the king, is that his forgiveness has meant so little to the unmerciful servant. Forgiveness is always meant to turn into more forgiveness. It doesn't know when to stop. It can't find the floor or the ceiling of limit. But because this servant has treated the king's forgiveness so lightly, the king takes it back. The pardoned servant is indebted once again. All of his debt is recommitted to his head and he's thrown into prison. And the point of the parable is clear. In the kingdom, you live by forgiveness or you die without it. In the kingdom, the more you avoid being dead, the deader you get. And in the kingdom, the sooner you give up the ghost and call yourself what you are. Fully and completely dead in ability the sooner you can rest on the gracious love of the forgiving king. In the kingdom, Jesus says, it works this way. Pay up on all accounts. Pay up on the sin in your heart, in your emotions, in your desires, in your pursuits, in your activities, in your actions. Pay up and you'll never be able to do it. Or be pardoned. Every parable starts out as an open room and we're invited in, but every parable ends as a sprung trap. The door slams shut behind us and the locks turn. Every parable ends not with an amen, but with a gasp and a gotcha. And did you hear the scandal in this parable? It's as clear as the contents of your own heart. That is, if you're brave enough and willing to dive deep enough and scour the wreckage down there. The unmerciful servant is lost in debt. Dead in debt. Can't get himself out of it. He's going to be sold off with his family in judgment. But then he cries for mercy and he gets it. Grace is for the asking, in other words, not for the earning. That's what makes it grace. And there is no explainable rational reason for it other than that the king's heart is pleased with it. The king chooses not to judge, but forgive, not postpone, but forgive, not defer the debt and set up a payment plan with interest, but forgive. And verse 27 in Matthew 18 leaves no question of it. Out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. The servant didn't die, the king did, in other words. The king paid the servant's losses. It's the death of judgment reassigned to the king. And now, it's a death of grace. But the forgiven servant goes away, pledging to work it off and pay it all back, even though there's, there's no way the servant could ever actually do it. 
And right there, it's no longer forgiveness. Right there, it's love turned away for law. Right there, it becomes once again a crippling load of debt. And that's our slavery. Our slavery is rejecting forgiveness. Our slavery is the deep, chilling fear that love could never love us that expensively, that completely. But Jesus says, this is what you submit to. You submit to being loved like this, giving up all your games, all your defenses, all your negotiations, giving up yourself to be loved more than you want, more than you ask, more than you could wish, more than you can believe. But we don't like forgiveness because it costs too much. It costs both the forgiver and the forgiven. It costs the forgiver what he or she is owed And it costs the forgiven what he or she wants to believe of self. How capable, how resourceful, how apt he or she is. It's just too expensive. And that's why forgiveness is a death. Forgiveness is a dying to an offense given. Dying to all claims of either vengeance or repayment. So that only love is left. When nothing is owed, we are free to love. But the opposite is also true. When we owe, we cannot love. And that's why we do the sharing of the peace of Jesus every week in the middle of our worship. It is far more than saying good morning to one another. It comes from Matthew 5 where Jesus says, if you're bringing your sacrifice and you remember that a neighbor has something against you, you've done something wrong, you've offended one, you're to leave your sacrifice on the altar and go make it right with your neighbor and then come back and offer your sacrifice. And here's the common misreading of that passage. This is the way we read it as... Slaves. God doesn't want your worship. God doesn't want your sacrifice until you make good on your own sin. God won't accept your sacrifice until you remove your sin. But that's not the gospel. The gospel. For all you slaves, all you jailed hearts, is the king himself will pay what you owe. And so, in Matthew 5, this interrupted sacrifice, right in the middle of the thing, the death is put on hold, just for a time. This interrupted sacrifice is a sermon of grace. Don't you see, Jesus is saying, your offense is being put to death. It's going to be burnt up and you're free. So go celebrate forgiveness with the neighbor you've offended, your brother, your sister. This sacrifice is the removal of the offense between you. The sacrifice left on the altar is Jesus on the cross. And that's what removes our insult. 
between one and the other. Which leapfrogs us from this parable ahead back into our passage in Ephesians 6. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or you're free, the text says. You're to serve Jesus. You are to serve Christ himself. That's the thrust of the passage. And for us, the way to think about it is God is the unthreatening master. He has poured all of his threats upon himself. And he's sold himself into judgment. And he's buried himself in our offense. And he's assumed the astronomical cost of it all in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we are the slaves. But we're not owned by duty, by obligation, by law trying to nickel and dime and extort our way out of our guilt until we feel better about ourselves. We're owned by forgiveness. A love that pays all costs to love us. It owns us. It has all rights to us. Our new slavery under grace is not a slavery of fear. It's submitting to unbelievable forgiveness. It's being set free in a love so amazing that we're captive to all it does for us and wants for us. And it's the only master that won't mistreat you. It's the only master you won't hate. It's the only master you won't try to escape. If you can actually believe forgiveness, if you can actually put all your hope, all your weight on it, I've never been there, but in the Tower of London, you can take a tour and be escorted down into the basement to see a cruel and notorious dungeon. It has a huge, heavy oak door that lets in no light, and no air circulates under or above it. And the room was built four feet square. It's so cramped, you can't stand up and you can't lie down. And that's what it's like to live without forgiveness. You can't see. You can't breathe. There's no comfort. There's only being twisted up unnaturally with no relief and no rest. And yet, living without forgiveness, you can still be highly functional. You're able to get things done, just like the unmerciful servant. But in order to be all the things that the Ephesians 6 passage describes for us. Servants of Christ, beholden to Him with sincere hearts. In other words, not acting or pretending. We're good actors. We're good at pretending. But we're to be sincere in heart. Doing the will of God from the heart, the passage says. Wanting God's will as He wants His own will. Rendering service With a good will. Serving not to look good. Listen carefully here because we all do this. Serving not to look good. But because you want good. No matter how you come out looking. Living as if we were waiting on the Lord Himself and not on people, the passage says. And yet to keep the sense of verse 5, even though we don't live in the slave classes and castes, the passage calls us 
to serve others expensively because we've been loved expensively. The way we've been loved is not lost on us. All this flows from a deep sense of forgiveness that's washed over us and washed through us. But in truth, it's easier to measure our crushing slavery the ways we don't believe in forgiveness. It's much easier to see the ways we reject forgiveness. And the passage gives us two marks. The first mark that you don't really believe the forgiveness of the gospel. You haven't fallen into its arms. You're not depending upon it and resting on it. You're not living on mercy alone. The first mark is in verse 6. You're a people pleaser. You love the opinions of others. In writing that, Paul is saying, why are we so enslaved with needing to please others and win their approval when God has already pleased himself on our behalf? Wanting to be well thought of, slaving away for the opinions of others, slaving away to accomplish our own opinion of ourselves. It's the very same as the unmerciful servant going away from the forgiving king saying, you don't have to worry, I'm going to pay it all back, every bit of it, I'll pay it all back, even though the king says, it's already been paid. And we imprison ourselves with unforgiveness. There's never enough and we never stop paying. The second mark of the way that we don't believe forgiveness is in verse 9, we're threatening. We make ourselves masters over each other with threats. It's all owing and collecting and paying, but it's never truly loving. It's putting the squeeze on others in an attempt to get from them what we think we need to have from them in order to pay away all claims against us instead of believing the full payment of the cross. And this is the unmerciful servant bullying the other servant, having him thrown in jail. We have ways of writing that kind of behavior off. It's not spiritual, it's just business. No, it's, it's absolutely spiritual. You can't offer freedom to anyone if you're in captivity. And so often, we're just unable to believe that God would open his heart or his hand to us. And so we feel like we have to choke what we owe out of others. It all comes from a feeling that there's something left for us to pay instead of believing that there's a love that's paid it all so that only love is left for us. So when Peter says to Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? What's the bottom on this thing, Jesus? Well, Jesus says, covering Peter's own unpayable debt, loving Peter's own unmerciful heart, That all depends on how much you've been loved. If you're dead in your debt, if you're desperate for forgiveness, and you've been smiled upon by a gracious and merciful king, says Jesus, as he's headed to the cross, 
And forgiveness is your default. Forgiveness is your language. It's your nature. It's your movement. It's the air you breathe. Stop holding your breath, Peter, and breathe deep. Stop holding your breath, church, and breathe deep. Begin believing in the forgiveness that Jesus never jokes about. Some historians say that this story is fabricated, it's apocryphal. But even if it is, it illustrates everything we've been talking about. Abraham Lincoln was in New Orleans, and on this occasion, he happened across a slave auction, and there was a young girl somewhere around 14 years of age on the block being sold. Everyone knows how Lincoln felt about slavery. And so he made up his mind he would bid one dollar more than the highest bidder until he won the girl. At the end of the auction, he paid the price, he collected her, and they started to walk away from the market. And the girl asked him what he intended to do with her. And Lincoln said, I bought you to set you free. And in disbelief, She asked if he really meant it. And honest Abe reassured her. Without hesitating, the girl said, then I'm going to stay with you because you are the one who set me free. And that's the gospel. We all have a master. Which is yours? As you look at your life, what owns you? The heart of cruel bookkeeping, always breathing threats, always choking out of you more, always wanting to please and pay off. Or, the heart of the forgiving king, whose books on you are closed forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, the masters that we have served in their tyranny and cruelty are our own unforgiving hearts. We just do not believe that we could be forgiven. And because we don't believe that we could be forgiven, we don't believe we could ever forgive anyone else. And it's all untrue. You're the unthreatening master. And we are those who are owned by your love. And so now, weave into our hearts and souls a confidence in your forgiveness and a desire to live by it and extend it to each other. Teach us the joy of putting offenses to death and not carrying them out. In the kingdom, the longer we try to avoid being dead, the deader we are. But in the kingdom, the sooner we admit to being dead, 
the sooner we're allowed to live in your life. And what we long for is the freedom of forgiveness. Help us to submit to it. Make us slaves to no other, but instead, win our hearts continually with your love. And for all of these things, we will give you thanks. And we ask them of you, because you are the gracious King who gives mercy for the asking. 